Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast, and my name is Brendan Bigley. That felt canon. That jingle felt like it would be the intro to our show <laughs> if we had a song. Hello and welcome to Into the Aether, low-key video game podcast. My name is <laughs> My name is Stephen Hilger. We've been up until 3 a.m. playing Mass Effect 2. What else do you want? What it else is do you want true. From us? I was I was actually almost up until 3 a.m. I was up until 2:30 a.m. playing Mass Effect 2 last night. Yeah, more on that later. Uh, just for some structure, we'll be doing later in this episode a spoiler sent conversation about the end of Mass Effect 1 and then like a light light spoilers in the sense of like if you want to go in blind don't listen but otherwise nothing you wouldn't experience in the first like opening hours conversation about Mass Effect 2 and just like how it kind of stands apart and how we're feeling revisiting it because that was the one you had played before and that's the one that like fucked up my whole life in a good way (laughs) Um, (laughs) but more on that later we wanted to open real quick just by like sharing our our biggest and sincerest thanks for everyone's response to our conversation last week. Basically, if you missed it, last week at the end of the episode, we kind of had a very candid conversation about like the cost of the show and how for the longest time we've never wanted to monetize it at all. But in thinking about the show's growth and what we want to do with it and how much time we have for it and energy and like how monetizing it weirdly can help it grow in ways that don't feel like adverse to our morals. But like, you know, we we had this kind of back and forth about like our resistance to that idea of using the Patreon to make patron only content or the idea of having ads. But we kind of laid out a plan that like we thought worked for our own conscious and in a way that would help the show generate income. And the response to that was like overwhelmingly positive and pretty much like we got tons of messages and emails from people being like, Hey, people we've like never heard from before prior to this moment being like, I love the show. I am in full support of whatever you have to do to do this. And like, it was just a relief to hear that because I think you could tell that we were both sort of nervous bringing it up, but like, it's really nice to know that, that we have such a supportive audience in ways like that feel, you know, like I'm, I'm just glad that that conversation was heard in a way we wanted it to be. Um, and I think like, it's really nice that, I mean, it's just nice. It just, (laughs) that whole, that whole response was like so overwhelmingly kind and supportive. And we also, also saw like a big uptick on the Patreon, which is incredible. So like, you know, it, it's it's never an easy conversation to talk about money, but basically it boiled down to we realized we weren't compensating ourselves for our time. And, you know, we're in a state where the show actively costs money out of our own pockets. And the response to that has just been like overwhelmingly supportive. So thank you. We just wanted to really sincerely thank you off the top of this episode. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I think I think um, we want to talk a little bit about like where we've netted out since last week. All also, um, in terms of like changes to that plan or whatever. So I, I Stephen and I want to be like wildly candid about all this stuff, like as we go through it, because like neither of us have done this before. Yeah, so. it's an open dialogue. <laughs> it's an open dialogue consistently. So, you know, I think yeah. like it's a constant work in progress. So, yeah. So just like a quick heads up, um, started looking into the ads thing um, and like how we could include ads, because strangely enough uh, or not strangely enough, for those of you who are literally in the middle of doing this, maybe as you're listening to it in the far future, uh, we have like as many listeners to previous episodes as we do to the current episode every week. Like the amount of people who download the latest episode, that same number of people are also listening to the backlog. So the thought was like, okay, we could throw ads in the backlog episodes. Like how would that work and whatever? And reached out to uh, an ad manager partner and stuff that like, they were just like, you just don't have enough listeners for it. So like ads (laughs) are going to be a long way off if that's ever going to happen. The threshold that was average, 
advertised to us and the one that they told us exists is like wild. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's not going to happen for a while. And specifically, the reason it's not going to happen for a while is like there are other avenues by which we could add advertisements to this podcast um, that would not be in the form that Stephen and I want. Because like, yeah, the two of us like really very specifically want to be able to like be okay with the thing that we're advertising. We want to do host red ads. So it's not just like somebody in a studio who you don't know recorded a thing somewhere and it just gets uploaded to the backlog and inserted in the middle of a like screaming rant about like maybe toad fucks you know like that's not (laughs) what we want um so like (laughs) i think i think we just want to like feel more comfortable about the ads that that sounds like dada to me i'm kind of into that maybe that is good mcdonald's commercial in the middle of a toad monologue (laughs) you could get a new battery every month if you subscribe anyway so i think um i I think ads are a a long way off because the ones that we would want to include uh just have a very high threshold so that said uh where we did net out uh, in terms of stuff that we're planning on doing is um we're gonna have those patreon bonus episodes the current bonus episodes that we have every month that are like game specific or like idea specific like those are gonna stick around be free for everyone i i think like where we kind of landed on it in our discussion about it is like i mean those are so just part of the show and part of like what into the aether is at this point like the bonus episodes that we do every month kind of allow us to shape all of the regular weekly episodes like around that and i know it yeah that's like maybe very ethereal but like that's just kind of how we feel about it so they're gonna stay free for everyone what we're gonna do like in the patreon bonus episodes i think is gonna kind of just vary from month to month but uh at the moment i think our plan for the first one is maybe doing like a big like summer games wrap-up kind of thing because e3 and summer games fest are happening around the same time so i think we want to do like some kind of wrap-up of both of those which uh will be fun and i don't know when you know those plans are actually gonna like unfold in terms of like when those shows are getting streamed and like what's if anything actually interesting is going to be revealed at either of them but uh expect to hear something from us on that front and uh that will also be happening next month after the launch of season four of the show because steve and i have a big plan for the launch of season four we already had the bonus episode planned for that month and the patreon episode will also be included in that whole bundle of like once season four launches that'll be the beginning of these patreon bonuses right yeah so right now it would be once a month and uh that will be the plan moving forward i'm also gonna draft up something to write on the patreon page itself we had some people suggest like having goals and stuff i mean full disclosure like just from last week's conversation we are now making like twice as much as we were on the patreon so like thank you all for your kindness with that like unbelievable to see like even before we had a plan that that support yeah that was really nice and it's and it's getting us closer to what i think our first goal would be which is like we just want to be able to you know pay aj like via the patreon right that's kind of one of the one of the first big goals that we're going to set so i guess just like if you're back in the patreon just stay tuned for that post there um and stay tuned for that goal there um and if you're not also that information will be there anyway uh so yeah patreon.com slash into the cast the other uh the other thing we'll be doing is merch which will probably be in the near future that's also still a bit more up in the air but that will happen and i think it will be a pretty easy thing to do where if you're a patron you'll get like a discount of some kind but um we're just kind of working out that stuff because that involves like irs adjacent paperwork so (laughs) yeah (laughs) we'll be we'll be working that out but that will happen probably you know i would expect like that will happen at some point in season four whereas the patron only episodes are the first like concrete thing 
thing happening that like you can expect next month, basically. Yeah. Also, going back to ads real quick, I think it, I'm glad we had that conversation just because I think that at the rate we're growing, it is a possibility in the way we want to do like in the future. So like, you know, I think that I'm glad we checked in now so that the the reality in which that is more of an option for us, we have already kind of discussed this, you yeah. know? So, yeah. It is 90 degrees in the room I'm recording right now. And I am so, <laughs> I was like, what's bothering you? I'm yeah. so feeling it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I just, I keep just raising my arms just to like expose myself to air. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's basically, unless you had anything more <laughs> so, to add. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's okay. I was so worried. I did. I said something to upset you when I, when I mentioned the ads, you like, and it was just because of the weather. Yeah. I got, yeah. I got like Don Draper flop sweat going on over here. Yeah. It's great. So do you have anything to add to that conversation? <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm just, I'm just so like, I was just so floored by the response last week. All the emails and messages and the uh, people in the discord hitting us up, like just was like wild. It was just like a wild yeah. experience. Um, and I think kind of like belayed all of the um, fears that we had and, and concerns that we might have had. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm excited to do these Patreon episodes. I think it's gonna be really fun. Yeah. And, and I think pa- the Patreon is for a long time going to be like the lifeblood of our show monetarily. So, you know, if you do want to support, that's the place to do it. Yeah. Ads are a long ways off, uh, but that's okay. Cause honestly I was more excited to do the other things anyway. I'm truly not sour grapesing it. I just was like, that was the thing I was most on the fence about. And the fact that it's like in the far future is kind of a relief in a weird way. Yeah. But if so, you anyway. did need to build a website, <laughs> Oh my God. Would you God. have an idea of where to go? Maybe <laughs> just because I'm genetically manipulating seeds and suing the farms <laughs> that my seeds land in doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. Anyway, um, let's move on. So you've been playing Metopia, and you have a really <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Speaking of uh, of suing farms, you've been playing Metopia. Um, we want to open this episode with like just kind of a couple games you've been playing that I cannot wait to hear about because like in a different reality where Mass Effect didn't come out, this would be like our obsession. But I think it's been you know eclipsed by a beloved sci-fi trilogy. Yeah, unfortunately, the o- I'll say this much right off the top: the only reason I haven't played more Metopia is that it actively told me to stop playing it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like shocked by. I streamed uh, my first like hour and a half to two hours um, of this game uh, up on our Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash into the cast. And uh, that, that'll be up on YouTube by the time this episode's out. But um, I immediately went and like, okay, I'm going to go, um, I, I'm going to go like play some more of this, you know, just so I can like get kind of a better idea of what's going on here for the episode. And then I yeah. played like maybe 30 minutes and then uh, it zoomed in on my character who I can't wait to talk about. And they were like, maybe take a break, maybe stop playing metopia for a little while i was like oh shit okay and then they just were like see ya come back eventually and then i stopped playing and then i switched to mass effect and that's all i've been doing since but i am absolutely gonna go back to metopia so here's the deal with metopia here's the video game <laughs> because i ha- i now have two videos on our youtube channel that are like some version of what the fuck is this game and like me trying to figure it out i played the demo when the demo dropped and what i gathered from the demo was you use the like me character creator to make a character and then you go on essentially like an almost idle game adjacent like turn-based rpg uh where you collect 
other uh, party members that you also have to create in the me character creator. Um, when I did that first like run, quote unquote, from the demo, I just like used my own me. I went through, I just like kind of did all the default choices and stuff, which was interesting. So the, the game is essentially structured in a way where there is like a dark lord. I, I'm going to say this matter of factly and we can go into it later, but there's uh-huh. a dark lord who has stolen the faces of all of the people who live in Metopia. Yeah. And has redistributed those faces onto monsters that are like roaming the planet and it's your job as the hero to go around and defeat those monsters and take those faces back and then put them back onto the heads of the me's whose faces were stolen that's the game like narrative (laughs) on the whole the way it actually plays is you and your party literally like you will pick you know kind of like in a super mario world adjacent overworld you will literally like pick a point on the map and your character and your party will just walk automatically from left to right across this vast expanse and just like have a conversation along the way based on their like character traits and their personalities and their class and and how like close they are in terms of a actual in-game relationship meter they will have these conversations and have these like kind of strange dialogues and like support scenes almost along the way and every once in a while there will be a turn-based battle uh, that happens in the process. When you're done walking from left to right, you stop at an inn, which is where all of the people in your party can like room up together and like hang out where they get closer. Uh, they can play games together. They all eat meals together. You can send them out on like dates, essentially. Um, and uh, then you just like prepare yourself for the next one. Um, and that is what Metopia is, the video game, because I was so fucking confused about that for so yeah. long. I had no idea what this game was. It came out on the 3D. Yes, it's worth mentioning. This is a re-release of this game for the Nintendo Switch. It was a 3DS game, heavy Street Pass, heavy uh, Nintendo Online kind of connectivity stuff going on with that game, which like isn't really the case as much on the Switch version. They just kind of like included all of those um, added benefits just like into the game itself. So like now there's a thing where when you turn it on, I think it gives you bonuses that Street Pass used to give you. But it's just like how long have you been away from the game when you come back in? We'll like give you bonuses. Um, so that stuff is kind of cool. But I I when this game came out on the 3DS had literally no idea what it was to the point that I called it the wrong thing forever. I I thought it was, (laughs) I thought it was Mitomo also, which was the name of the, uh, uh, dearly beloved Mitomo. The social media me. Yeah, Nintendo yeah. made a, a social media app for smartphones that was just brilliant. Please it bring it amazing. back. But I thought it was that, and then I got confused uh, when Mitomo came out, and I was like, okay, this is strange. What is this Mitopia thing? And then I thought it was DLC for the Street Pass Plaza, which was like a series of games that you could play with the other Mies that you would like meet in Street Pass, like in real life. You brought your 3DS in your pocket, and you Street Pass with someone, and they got added to your quote-unquote quote me plaza you could then like play mini games <laughs> with them and one of them was this kind of like rpg-esque adventure i don't remember what it was called but you were essentially fighting a dark lord adjacent thing and it just like has almost the exact same vibe as metopia so when i saw metopia come out for the 3ds i was just like oh it's weird that there's dlc mini games for this thing i'm not gonna play that i've now since learned very different video game, very different idea. We bring this up on the show all the time, but our producer, AJ, hello, AJ, famously said once in a conversation between the three of us, trying to guess what Nintendo is going to do is a fool's errand. And I think about that all the time because like this game in particular feels like the embodiment of that idea. This is like... (laughs) 
that like no one could ever predict that Nintendo would make a video game like this. It doesn't work like any other game. It is confusing to like <laughs> try and figure out mechanically what it is for yeah. like hours of the game. It's like, oh, is this really all it is? But you're like, no, there's got to be something around the corner. And then there's not. But then suddenly there is. And then there's not again. And like they just keep adding things that will just break your brain in different ways down to it's like most component parts until you're just like a blob sitting on the couch, just like letting this experience wash over you because it's just so like concerning and confusing and like wonderful all at once. It reminds me so much of Tamadachi Life, which was like another yeah. game on the 3DS that was like literally like what if we turned the idea of the Miis into like a real world like reality show, <laughs> but that yeah. was also a video game on the Nintendo 3DS. Like that was Tamadachi Life. That was amazing. Metopia feels like kind of the RPG answer to that in a way where like if Tamadachi Life is Animal Crossing, this is like, I don't know, Dragon Quest, um, but with Miis. <laughs> Uh, they were really trying to make the Miis happen for a while on the 3DS. And I don't think they like really did. But I'm so glad to have this game because it's so fucking wild. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is it like I hate to be this reductive, but like, do you like it? I'm excited for you to ask this question. Is it good? Like that? I need I never asked that of you, but like I need to know because I still don't know the answer. And maybe there isn't one. I'm up in the air on it. I'll say this much. Yeah. When I played the demo, I was like, I and you can watch this in the video. I had a moment where I was like, I think this game is bad. <laughs> I just think it's yeah. a bad game because um, the actual like user interaction is so limited in so many instances that like I just feel like I wasn't exerting any like agency over what was happening at all. All of that changed when I started playing it again. Like all of that changed when I got the full release because uh, the demo was so weird that I was like, I need to play the full thing. Um, yeah. Like I was sold by the demo, even though I was like, I think this is bad. <laughs> um, so the full game I started playing and like, you know, I was doing it on stream. And if you've listened to the show long enough, you know that my like threat at Nintendo is that until you make a Waluigi video game, I'm going to turn every other video game into a Waluigi game. Right. Um, so every game that has a character creator, for the most part, I will make Waluigi in. So I did that, obviously, in Metopia. I was like, this is going to be the Waluigi origin story. This is where he came from. This is how he met everyone that he knows. Uh, and that's going to be the deal. So he was my first character. Making Waluigi, just a dream. Just an unbelievable experience. Can I also add that, like, you, I know you've done this in a lot of other games, but somehow this feels like the best fit. Like, if Waluigi was the main character in a game, it would be something as fucking weird as this <laughs> game, where you eat goblin ham and go to the movies. Like, that's... This is the Waluigi game, canonically, I think. Yeah, it's... So, what happens is you, like, go into the me character creator and then you have to make... You have to make a me. So, I, I made, you know, the closest thing you can make to Waluigi, like, with the like standard me character creator and then immediately it was like what is Waluigi's personality which like thrust me into an existential spiral that I yeah, had a hard time a clawing question. my way out of yeah uh we, yeah so we we all decided me and everyone in chat we decided that Waluigi is cool yeah that works does it work I mean I'm still up in the air about it because when I sit back and I think like is Waluigi cool the answer isn't immediately yes but that's where I landed in the What's long the, term uh, there's like an Alfred Hitchcock short film where it's like one person's face with like a very neutral expression, but it keeps cutting to different things right before the face. And it makes you unconsciously think that they're making different expressions oh, based cool. on what proceeds. I haven't it. heard of that, but that's a great 
Yeah, and I love that idea. And I feel like that's Waluigi. Like, Waluigi is actually nothing. So whatever you you bring to the table as the shot before his face is what he is. <laughs> so if, you, if you're feeling cool, Waluigi's cool. Yeah. He's cool. In this yeah. video game, Waluigi is cool. So they, they yeah. ask you the, the personality, and then the next thing they do is they ask for a profession. And the options are, like, some classics. You got warrior, you got mage, and then you have things like thief. Uh, there's another one called pop star, and there's another one called chef. And they'll do different things. You know, it's kind of like classic, uh, you know, tank DPS healer kind of stuff. And then like a couple like mixes of both that are just, you know, like classic Nintendo flair on top of that. Uh, we ended up going with Thief for Waluigi because my weird headcanon is that Waluigi is like a burglar. Like my actual ideal, like, OK, Nintendo is actually going to make a, a, a Waluigi solo game. What is it going to be? My weird ideal is that it's like a 1910s adjacent heist drama. Yeah. A silent movie villain, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I want to rob banks as Waluigi. That's what I think would be like the perfect video game for him. So I was like, he's going to be a cool thief. That's the vibe. So you make this character, you get launched into the game. They immediately are like, OK, now you have to make the Dark Lord. And obviously, if <laughs> Waluigi is the hero of this game, then the only obvious villain would be Luigi, right? I'm sorry. I- I, you're doing this so well, but like you keep hitting me with Metopia lore, and I need like a second just to like s- like walk around the room. Just I to, like digest. The thing is, I've gone through it twice now, right, and, so and I'm looking at this from the point of view of a scientist. Whereas, <laughs> just just the first time I played it was like a purely emotional, like blissful experience. The second time I went in with a little bit more of like a surgical twinge to it, and yeah. now I feel like I have this thousand foot view of this thing that should be unexplainable. Right. I just, I'm just laughing too because I've seen so many ads for this for some reason and like they are marketing it as if it's like a fun family game and I'm like this would tear my family apart in ways that like <laughs> we all experienced like we all saw a weird movie at 3am that was like claymated and it scared us and we all had to like walk away to deal with it on our own. <laughs> yeah you went to go see Coraline and it's like yeah. oh maybe the themes in this movie are a little bit heavier than you think they are when you like, sit down. It's not like oh let's make dad the dark lord. It's like d- don't you realize what meaning that character this is not a casual game. Right. This is witchcraft. This is like a we- like a Ouija board being sold as a board game. That's exactly how I feel about Metopia <laughs> being sold as like a fun for the family game. Like, yeah. No, no, no. This is the portal to another place. Right. Another realm. That that feeling that Nintendo is able to capture with a game like Mario Party or Mario Kart, where it's like this is fun. It's splashy. It's colorful. It's the best selling game like maybe of all time on any Nintendo console. But also when you hit your friend with a blue shell and they were in first the whole time that is going to have an impact on your real life relationship with that friend maybe that energy the blue shell energy of yes. mario kart is metopia <laughs> harnessed and released as like an ambient video game yeah it, it, it's evil in a way like it, it feel i'm constantly <laughs> waiting for something to go wrong in a way that's like inappropriate not even like <laughs> scandalous but just like i'm waiting for the game itself to like crack in a way yeah because uh, it's just like constantly poking at these ideas i'm like what is ha-? it really does feel like a nightmare or like a dream that is like about to become a nightmare at any point yeah 
And that's the thing. The, the game mechanically is so ambiguous and so strange that it just <laughs> it feels like Metopia happens to you. It doesn't feel like you play Metopia. <laughs> on, on a more on a more grounded note, though, like honestly, watching you play, like I'm so torn between whether or not I want to get it because like there is a version like if, if there was like an actual or I don't want to say actual RPG to be like elitist, but like I'll say it in the case of Metopia, if there was an actual RPG that like was using these ideas, I think it would be like my favorite game ever because I love games that like incorporate this amount of player customization that have like these sort of like budding relationships between the party and the impact that has on the game and that's like persona that's mass effect weirdly but like the game itself is so abstract that i think the things it's doing that i think are fun and i would want to like explore are not really supported by the core game itself from what i have seen maybe i'm wrong but that's kind of like why i'm not sold on it yet but again, it happens to you. I think even watching it, I'm like kind of immune to the magic or the sort of dark spell of the game. So <laughs> maybe I should give it a shot eventually. But uh, is it $60? Is it like a full price thing? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. Uh, okay, I might wait. If yeah. it ever goes on sale. It's, look, I don't know if I'd recommend Metopia to anyone, but I sure <laughs> am enjoying playing it and sharing that That's with great. people. Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not shaming you for Metopia. I just wanted to know because I'm like very on the fence of getting it. Watching you play was a joy and it was so funny and so much fun to watch. And like there is a gameplay loop that is being broadcasted that I'm like, oh, I'm kind of into that. I just don't know how much meat there is there for me. Yeah, I well, what's wild is that like it's it's onion adjacent in the layers it keeps revealing to me. <laughs> you know um right. so like j- just to like fly through what I, what I was going into so like Please. luigi we made the dark lord he immediately as soon as you finish like making who the dark lord is going to be he rips the faces off of everybody in town and then just like kind of disperses <laughs> them throughout the world and then uh-huh. it becomes your job to like go out into the world rescue those people's faces and then bring them back to the town and put them back on their heads and along that journey uh there's this like deity I guess, who speaks to you through a necklace that you're given, uh, who just continues to tell you like, oh, I've hired someone new for your party. And then they'll just show up at the inn that you're at. And then you have to make that character. So like, obviously, the first character we made as like the like first party member was going to be Wario. uh, Because I like the idea of Waluigi being the star of this game. And Wario is like the kind of like, like plucky, stubborn sidekick. Is the Krillin, yeah. Yeah, kind of like the hero in Dragon Quest Eight and Yangus, you know, was my thought. Um, <laughs> but uh, but Wario in this game oh is a pop my star. God. Sorry. You have forever linked Wario with Yangus to me. <laughs> that works. It's really good. Uh, Boy, in, Gov. In this game, Wario is a pop star because we made him a pop star. He's a stubborn pop star, which has Love been great. That. That works. Um, our third party member was Toad, uh, which just seemed fun. And and uh, Toad is a chef, by the way, Chef Toad. Love uh, that. Which it's essentially ends up being a healer. You know, like Toad can hit people with the frying pan, but also cooks food for everyone in the party to heal them. What happens when you're at the inns, though, this is like where the part that you, I think, maybe would be most interested in. Uh, what happens at the inns, though, is you have to take all of your party members and all of the rooms in the inn are empty. They're all vacant. And you have to decide who is staying in what room and you have to take your party members and pair them up in the rooms and that essentially like builds up their persona social links where they'll have like support scenes with one another where they grow closer or I don't know they just like hang out and when they get closer they learn new skills that they can use in combat and the skills are like I want to show off for my friends so I'm going to like do a critical hit for them or another one where it's like you did a great job you know they'll just like compliment the other person so the next time is their turn again like they're going to do even better there are all these like really really like 
bizarre like social support link moves that just like keep building up over time and you can <laughs> expedite that process so it's not just when you're at inns by getting these things called outing tickets which allow you to send two of your party members out on like a date somewhere so you can like go to a cafe or the movies or whatever um, and that will like irreparably change the relationship uh, <laughs> for better or for worse the other things that happen at inns are like every time you beat a monster they turn into a food that you can then feed to your party members that build up their stats but it also depends on how much they like that food or not. Yeah, goblin ham. That feels weirdly yeah. cannibalistic to me. Like, I would never want to eat a goblin. I you know, know, it's like, it's really horrifying. And, yeah. like, I'm amazed when they're like, this is my favorite food. <laughs> yeah, don't trust a me who likes goblin ham. Let's yeah. put that on my tombstone. Yeah. It's, man, every time <laughs> I sit down to play this game, like, something new and completely wild happens. I know this from the demo, but you eventually, like, have to, like, go through a me character creator to create a horse, which is, like, one of the most shocking shocking reveals of a video game <laughs> I've ever seen. It's it's really amazing. What I I'll just say this before we move on. My actual favorite thing in the entire game, I don't know why it's this one bit specifically, but when you're at the inn, so you get money obviously like as you like, you know, beat monsters or whatever. When you're at the inn, all of your party members will like want to buy upgrades for themselves. So like maybe they'll want a new weapon or like a new outfit that has like higher armor stats or something or maybe they'll want to buy like healing items or whatever. You can give them the money to go buy those things, but you don't actually buy that like you personally the player don't buy those things you give them the money to buy them and they may or may not buy that thing they might just take the money and spend it on something completely different <laughs> i did see the part of your stream where wario was like can i buy a fedora and we're all like i guess you know? <laughs> it's like you had one you should get a bigger one <laughs> and he's like oops i bought bitcoin fuck you wario <laughs> i thought you wanted a fedora it's the one route where Fedora is the better option. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like it has midnight movie energy as a video game. That's like the yeah. best way I can sum it up just from watching it. Hearing you talk about it makes me want to get it. And I I just feel like I, I, I will wait a little bit. But, you know, once once I'm like post Mass Effect, I might need a little Metopia in my life to like, Dude. you know, yeah. ground me, bring me higher. I don't know. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very special video game. Yeah, thank you for sharing your time with it. I'm excited for you to make a horse with a human face. Uh, oh my god, I didn't even mention. Once you make... So here's the thing. You make the characters in the me character creator, but then you get into the video game and they have an option called makeup and hairstyles. And that's where it gets really wild because that's where they... I don't know why they never upgraded the me character creator like ever right. across yeah. any of the Nintendo consoles from the Wii onwards. It's all the same options from the Wii. Uh, but in Miitopia specifically, they like really upgrade it to the point where it becomes like maybe even problematic. Like it's just so many options it's so daunting it's so wild that like i didn't really know what to do but it did allow me to like give wario and waluigi like their actual mustaches that they yeah. have like in the art i gave them like the under eye like blue eyeliner that they both have and they're like pink noses um it's amazing how powerful that character creator is and i've seen articles online of people making just like the wildest shit you could possibly make yeah you're not it really is like you go from the wee character creator we all already know and have like like maxed out the creative potential of and then you go to like just a 3d rendering animated studio right program. yeah it's just like, blender it's like yeah, that just level of yeah. a jump. yeah <laughs> 
but yeah, it's cool. Do you want to take a bit of a break and talk about the other game you're playing, or do you want to do that now? I'll, yeah, I, I don't have uh, the longest like take on Famicom Detective Club. I was going to mention it last week. I've played like a bunch more of it since last week also. Specifically, the first one, Famicom Detective Club, The Missing Heir is the name of it. There's a second one that is also a prequel that's called The Girl Who Stands Behind that I think we're going to play in October uh, for Spooky yeah. Season. But The Missing Heir, I was really interested in playing because it's this, you know, cla- again, super fucking weird Nintendo can never guess what they're going to do. Um, <laughs> it, it's a remaster of two games from from 1988 and 1989 that like never got released in the US, uh, never got translated. And uh, they have all new art assets, all new music, like whatever. Um, And they're like sold kind of as a two pack. If you buy one, you get $10 off the other one. And I was just like, what the fuck is this thing? Why are you releasing it now? Like, this is just so (laughs) confusing and so strange that I was like, I kind of got to get it. Yeah, because it seems like, you know, it's it's a classic like detective story, kind of like adventure game is like the actual like genre that it's called. It's, you know, visual novel adjacent. Also, essentially just the investigations from Phoenix, right? If you've played those games, like it's just the investigation stuff all the time. None of the courtroom stuff. And uh, The Missing Air has been a really interesting game for me because immediately it started and I was like, I think I love this. I love the art. I love all these characters. I love this music. It's like really charming and really strange. But also my biggest gripe with it and the reason that I like, I think maybe just wouldn't recommend The Missing Air specifically is um, they changed everything about the presentation of this game to modernize it and changed literally nothing about the mechanics of the game. And the mechanics are the thing of those two halves of the video game. The mechanics are the ones that needed to be upgraded or like needed to be changed in some way or smoothed out. Just like to make a very long story very short. You go and you talk to all these people, you go around, you investigate stuff. But when you're in conversations with people, you have these options, right? It's like talk. Okay, talk about what? Remember, remember like what piece of information? Think about it yourself. Look at and you can like kind of point a cursor around the uh, the area around the room and kind of just like have your protagonist kind of look at things and like, you know, uh, meditate on them and maybe come to new conclusions or travel to a different place. What happens in Famicom Detective Club, specifically The Missing Air, uh, is that you will have to talk to a person like many, 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 many times before they'll give you the piece of information that you actually need. And what that means is like when you hit the talk button on a in a conversation with somebody, you'll have like 10 dialogue options and you can go through all 10 of them and it won't progress a story at all. What you actually needed to do was either do them in the right order or go to like the fourth or fifth one and then do it like three or four times until they like relent and then maybe tell you. And you would think like okay maybe there's some kind of like clue that like when you ask them the same question over and over again like their response changes a little bit every time that'll like lead you towards like oh i should just keep asking them this no the first thing that they said when you ask them that question is the same thing they'll say the next two times so you think that you're not making any progress at all but like the fourth time you ask them they'll finally be like fine i give in go behind the bookshelf and grab this you know like whatever uh, and like lead you on to the next thing and what it means is that you just like spend literally like 30 to 40 minutes just like frustrated in the same exact text box like trying to figure out what the fuck you're supposed to do Uh, yeah that's not good and that really bums me out because everything else about the game is great yeah i'm at the point now where i'm just literally playing the game with a guide that was written like forever ago (laughs) because it's literally one-to-one they haven't changed any of it um 
just because I like the story. I think the story's great. The whole, like, long, long story short for, with the story, at least for what I've seen so far, not spoiling anything, uh, is you're a detective who, like, wakes up on the beach. He has amnesia. Like, something may or may not have happened to him. He might have been attacked or whatever. Um, and he wakes up and, like, everybody in his life is like, yeah, man, you're a detective. You got hired to do this, like, really high-profile thing. Like, I can't believe you don't remember any of this. And you just start becoming a detective just because people tell you that you were a detective, which I think is hilarious. That's almost uh, Disco Elysium by accident, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a way, in 1988. You almost have no authority for the position you're in, or you don't, actually, <laughs> other than the idea that... Yeah, you don't even know who you are or, like, how to be a detective, really. And the whole case that you're on is, like, there's an extremely wealthy family. They're um, the, the person who, like, kind of owned the entirety of the family, or, like, the, you know, the, the leader of the family, was murdered the night she, like, revealed the will. Very Knives Out in that way. And, like, all of the family members are suspects in the same way that Knives Out works. Um, but it leads you down some really interesting paths that deviate from knives out i was just like oh this is just knives out but in the 80s um and it deviates pretty quickly but uh that's pretty much the story and it's interesting i've heard a lot that the second one uh the girl who stands behind is like way more interesting way more streamlined mechanically just like is the better game so much so that it might not even be worth playing the first one um, oh wow uh it's just like a straight up horror game um yeah with like none of the weird amnesia stuff uh it's like all set in a high school so it's like kind of like a like film noir detective story set in a high school school that also has like shades of horror stuff just seems good and and uh like way more interesting so i'm gonna finish the missing air because it's not like that long of a video game yeah i just wish that they had like updated it to like even match the second one you know right right yeah it seems weird yeah like why i don't know why why modernize it why release it like i'm just so confused like what the what the (laughs) idea behind releasing these games was not to mention what were the games that just added to the super nintendo collection like magic drop 2 dude i don't even know man like i know japan got a fire emblem game and we got like i don't know nothing (laughs) we got nothing yeah (laughs) i don't mean but i i can't imagine (laughs) we got anything yeah yeah, I'm really excited to play the horror one with you. I think our plan is to stream that together in October. Yeah. So that'll be really fun. But yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, I, I, I think like it's it's a tricky conversation with the whole like modernizing a re-release. It's like you do want that to be kind of a time capsule, but it's also, like you said, weird that they updated everything else and not that. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, in, in a perfect world, you could have both where it's like, here's the like updated version mechanically and aesthetically. And here's like the original if you wanted to see what it was like back then. But yeah, that is that is weird. But anyway, I'm excited to I'll probably still check out the other one. I think I'll probably end up getting both eventually. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Just pl- just like straight up, Stephen, just play it with a guide. Just like from yeah. go, just like have a laptop in front of you or like your iPad or something and just like load up a walkthrough and just follow it to the letter. Because um, yeah. all the characters are great. The story's great. Like I really enjoy a lot of what I'm seeing here. It just like feels like shit if you play it the way they intended you to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. And that's Nintendo. That's what Nintendo's been up to recently. It's Metopia and Famicom <laughs> oh Detective Club. Oh my god, Club. you're right. Until Mario Golf comes out, like, those are the first party Nintendo games. Oh, I am so excited for Mario Golf. That's going to be great. Yeah. I hope it's good. Yeah, they just released, like, a whole video that was just, like, kind of going, like, more in-depth with that game. And, like, I'm excited for the golf aspects of Mario Golf. But specifically, speed golf is like one of my favorite ideas I've heard about in a video game. Like, even if it wasn't Mario <laughs> Golf, if like some indie developer was like speed golf, 
This is what it's going to be all about. The, just a quick wrap up. The idea is you are playing against three other people uh, online uh, or I guess, you know, against computers or whatever, but online with your friends uh, and you all tee off at the exact same time. And as the ball is flying through the air, you have to like sprint to where you think it's going <laughs> to land. And then the first person to get the ball in the hole wins. But they also have like Mario Kart adjacent power ups on the field that you can use, to, like fuck up the people that you're playing against. Brilliant. Brilliant video game so idea. Fun. I'm glad it's also optional too, though, because I feel yeah. like with, with Mario Tennis Aces, they had like a similar spin on tennis, but that was the only way you could play it. Yeah. So it was like, you, I really just wanted to get the Mario Tennis experience and it was like, no, 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 this is a fighting game about breaking rackets. I'm like, that's not what I wanted. Yeah, totally. Uh, so like, I think Speed Golf does sound way more intriguing than what they did with tennis, but I'm just glad that it's like one of many modes yes, to play. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to just like listen to a podcast and play Mario Golf. It's going to be very chill. I just love to, like, everyone's been talking about the, the different golf outfits everyone has, which is unbelievable. Like, yeah, honestly, Wario's outfit in that game looks a lot like the outfit I gave him in Metopia. It does. I think you had a cosmic effect on it. I also like how Rosalina doesn't, she uses uh, te- telepathy to move the golf club. Yeah. So she's not even holding it. Amazing. It says, it says a lot about her as a person. Yeah. It's like one thing to be playing golf. Like it has sort of like an elitist high class vibe to it. Yeah. It's another to not even hold the club like i'm just yeah. going to use my psychic powers because i am the queen of space uh, <laughs> to golf she's she's a fascinating character i, I also want a rosalina solo game what if waluigi golfs like with the club in his mouth and just walks on all fours <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna get that faster in speed golf um, he's like a pan's labyrinth demon like his eyes on his palms yeah i mean it would be our game of the year then <laughs> it, w- it would be hades Guillermo del Toro knocked it out of the park, literally, with uh, With Mario Golf. (laughs) And his quadrupedal speed golf form, straight from hell. You want to take a break? Absolutely, yeah. Goodbye. See you soon. Hello, we are back, and we are going to have a spoiler-free conversation about Mass Effect 1 and 2 from the Legendary Edition. Brendan and I have both at this point finished the first game, uh, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, I still can't believe I finished Mass Effect 1. You did? I'm very proud of you. Um, And then we'll talk a little bit about 2. Uh, and then after this section, it will be a spoiler full conversation about 1 and light light spoilers for 2. Really nothing past the opening like 5 hours, but if you want to go in blind... Yeah. Just avoid that. I'm I'm three hours into Mass Effect 2, uh, yeah. just for context. So I'm, I haven't really done a whole lot yet. Also, as a heads up, I think this will, this is just the very beginning of our Mass Effect content. So like we are both pretty committed to doing a full bonus on the trilogy at some point in the near future. So like there'll be more conversations if you want to wait for the whole thing too. Yeah. I just felt really compelled to like talk about my experience with the first one, especially after I, I think, you know, I was a couple hours into it uh, when we talked about it last week, but um, now having finished mass effect one and starting mass effect two first of all that transition is like shocking which i want to get into yeah but even though you know look let me just be upfront. mass effect two is so much better than mass effect one in every (laughs) single way so immediately like within like maybe 10 minutes that i understand now in retrospect you know as a person who's like essentially still new to the series even though i like played some mass effect two way back when i understand now why people recommended just skip the first one and start with two because even with the like modifications they've made to Mass Effect 1 mechanically uh, in Legendary Edition, it is still like a night and day scenario between 1 and 2. 
That said, if you're buying Legendary Edition, just play one anyway. This is my new recommendation for people is like my recommendation was always going to be play one because like if you're buying Legendary Edition and the idea of having, you know, the same Commander Shepard go through all three games, that's cool. Like why why not do that? If you bought three games, like not playing one of them seems wild to me. But specifically with Mass Effect 1, what I would recommend you do if you, like me, have heard for years that it's like fine comparatively uh mechanically it's a little rough it's gonna be a little bit of a slog to get through but then it's gonna be worth it once you hit two mass effect one is an amazing video game it is it is incredible and pretty much all of that is due to its narrative like almost all of that comes down to like conversations Mm -hmm. that you have with people and what's happening from a story perspective if you're gonna play these games do mass effect one on casual mode like just maybe even auto level up all your characters like don't even like worry about that stuff because all of those systems are going to change in two anyway for the most part some of it's going to carry over but you're going to like there's a lot of stuff that's going to change once you hit two just play through that game in a way that you know you will finish it you know like if you throw that game into like the hardest difficulty or something right when you start you're going to have a really bad time and you might not make it to two and making it to two after finishing one is so worth it that however you need to to do that whatever settings you have to change whatever you have to do to make it through that first game mechanically totally fine that said it's still really fun i had a great time playing one even in the combat i was like this is a good video game i like playing it it's just that two is so good it retroactively makes you think that one was bad and it, that's not the case at all yeah i completely agree for the most part i would push back a little bit against the auto leveling personally because i think that there are some things you want to focus on that like won't get there if you don't max out. And I also think like, and this is maybe more subjective, but the one thing that I kind of prefer in one in terms of the combat is like they they streamline the leveling up in a way that mostly works in two and three. But as an RPG fan, I like the full Excel sheet of abilities. Like Mm -hmm. it's fun to me to do that and to see like what unlocks. But I I mean, I agree. I I think like whatever you have to do to get through one. So as someone who like my experience, as I've said before, I started with two. I I took that shepherd into three and then I realized I was such a big fan that I needed to see one. And then I did one through three. And I really I, I was glad I did that. But I really struggled playing through one the first time. So in a pre legendary world, my machete order would have been and I've, I've even written about this. Like, I would actually say, like, start with two to get a sense of like what the game does well. And then if you love it, go back and do one through three. Mm-hmm. But now I'm with you. Like you, you absolutely need to start with one. And my opinion of one has like kind of skyrocketed after playing it through a second time. And the thing is, like the legendary edition doesn't change that much, but they do sand off the edges in a way that like it at the very least allows for the game's strengths to overpower the weaknesses. Yeah. You know, like I I didn't feel like it was unplayable the way I did when I first played it, you yeah. know? Even from the very first mission, like the very first combat mission you go into, I was like, this feels way better than I thought it was going to feel. And then it really only gets better as you unlock more abilities and stuff uh, and more and more characters yeah absolutely the thing too about starting with one is that if you don't start with one if you just start two with a new shepherd you cannot choose what the big decisions were so it defaults to like some like iffy decisions yeah like without without saying what they are like some of the decisions (laughs) that they default to if you didn't play one are like i i think most people wouldn't make those choices and what we've actually learned i think in just like conversations with people from bioware you know over the years and whatever in interviews is like they kind of did that a little bit on purpose because so many people went paragon in mass effect one which is like the good shepherd route um and so few people went renegade 
renegade that like going into two and defaulting to some of the like extremely renegade options, I think maybe just kind of like was them trying to push people into, you know, exploring renegade more as a viable path. I guess so. Yeah, it, it really feels like a punishment for not playing one, two, though, because like, I totally agree. Having looked at the list of the choices that they default to, I was like, this is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I think like like we kind of talked about last time, I think they saw how few people went renegade in the first game. And I think you can already tell from the opening hours into how much like more appealing renegade is as an ideology. Yes, you know, absolutely. Specifically, like I'm still pretty much 100% Paragon, but I have like a block in renegade almost solely because of the quick time events that are just too fun to not do. Like, mm. you know, they'll be like, someone will be like, you are beneath me, Shepard. You're nothing but Scott. You know, then it is like a, an icon of renegade will pop up and you're just like smack them. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it's just, I don't always do it because it's not always in character, but there are just some that I'm like, this is too good to pass up. Yeah. Conversely, there are also Paragon quick time events that are usually like helping someone or there's one really early on. We'll talk about this more when we get to two, but there's one early on where like you see like a really young kid trying to sign up for the mercenaries and the Paragon mm, yes. one is like, you just take his gun and like empty the ammo and go like, don't do this. Like you'll be, you'll thank me later. Yeah. What I love too about the second game is like you get like death stranding emails from everyone you've like helped. So that kid emails you later and he's like, yeah, thanks for doing that. Cause I, I <laughs> oh, just read the know. news. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I just went through that. So going back to one though, I, I agree. One is like a breathtaking game. And I think that, um, the reasons why it was hard in my first run of it were largely, like you said, mechanical, the inventory menus were a mess. The gunplay just wasn't good. And most like annoyingly, the AI was just terrible. Like mm. your squad. And that's kind of what bumps up against the leveling system. Cause you could spend like an hour mid maxing Tali's stats and she's still just going to run into a wall. It's the only bad thing I'll say about Tali. I love her, but like <laughs> the AI of one, like your friends are just running around like nonsensically and getting mm. killed and it's just not fun. And, and the class balance is also really off where like, if you weren't a soldier, you were at an extreme disadvantage, like no matter what. Yeah. I, I, picked soldier in mass effect one uh just kind of on a whim and then found out later like oh that was absolutely the move because pretty much all of the other squad mates that you can get are like heavily indexing in either biotics or tech which are like those are your three things like soldier biotics or tech so like it's hard to find a good balance in terms of your combat ability if you're not playing soldier i learned pretty early on i was like pretty retroactively glad i made that choice on a whim yeah the only every other character like you said is a class that shepherd can be so like Mm -hmm. the only character that is a soldier is ashley and like you'll probably have rex and garris in your squad all the time anyway yes i absolutely did for the most part i i use tali a lot as well what what they did in the legendary version that helped with the class balance is they made it so that any class could use any weapon but you can only level up the class-specific weapons. So, yes. like, I was an adept, and adepts can only level up pistol, which I used for most of the game with no issue. But if I wanted to, I could also use, like, sniper rifles or assault rifles or whatever. They just wouldn't be as good. But, yeah, I mean, the the, the combat went from bad to serviceable, basically. And right. what I realized is, like, the strengths of one, and I think the reason, like, I remember, you know, reading conversations online about, like, which game were people's favorites. And, like, even though two is probably the winner there, like, there are a lot of people that would say one or three specifically one and i th- i always thought that it was like oh you kind of had to play one like if one was your formative experience of course it would be your favorite but yeah. like it has an age as well but playing it now I, I i can see why one is a lot of people's favorites because i think it has the best focus on the lore and the world building and there are some moments that like specifically the vermeyer mission and the finale as a whole are just so like breathtaking as a work of sci-fi totally that it's it's really hard 
hard. Like, I think the later games focus way more on character and pay off because of that. Mm-hmm. But this game focuses on like, it, it definitely has the best A plot. Like, I think two's plot is I really enjoy the focus of it. And I enjoy the here's a goal you, you're told from the very beginning. And it and the game becomes an excuse to spend time with the whole cast. You right. know? Yeah. It, beca- it becomes like side mission Olympics, essentially. Right. In Mass Effect <laughs> 2, where like almost almost like Bethesda-esque, where like maybe the main plot isn't worth doing for a little while because like it's just so much more fun to go do all the side missions. And then it makes the main plot more rewarding when you've done all those side missions in two yes in a way that that does not happen in bethesda games <laughs> <laughs> right uh and i'm then the king three... of thieves and nobody knows it <laughs> <laughs> and then in three uh it's weirdly kind of like dragon age origins where the whole plot is like you're trying to rally every alliance together you know to varying degrees of success <laughs> but uh but yeah one i think like especially if you played in 2007 this game is just so ahead of its time in terms of writing and in terms of like even though i think the characters shine much better in two yeah specifically like garris and tali i kept talking up while streaming one and like they're fine in one like they're they're appealing characters but they're like life-changingly great in two <laughs> like <laughs> really really shocking how much garris in particular is like a star in Mass yeah. Effect 2. <laughs> Mass Effect 1, I because I, I remembered a little bit of Garrus from Mass Effect 2 from when I played it originally. Not a whole lot, but I just remembered being like, this is like probably the best character in this crew. And then going back and playing 1 was like, I can't wait to see his origin story. It was like, oh, it's fine. It's it's very yeah. okay. He's all right. But immediately, like just the way he's written in 2 is like a completely different person. Not ri- not completely different, but like just more confident, I guess. Yeah, he he goes from, and, that, and that's what's fun about 1 is like you see how all the characters start and how you know their arc i mean specifically liara tali and garris are the three that are in like all three games if all goes according to plan (laughs) but uh to see them you know garris starts out kind of like almost naive and like you know he has this sort of renegade sense of justice that you can either like encourage or talk him out of and he goes from being sort of like you know the rogue member of your squad to being like shepherd's equal and opposite totally there's even a line in three where he's like there's no shepherd without vicarian and like you're just buds like you are a complete oh, man if there's any member of the squad that means almost as much as shepherd it's garris somehow and you share a lot because you're both sort of like these heroic characters with their own set of ideals that are like kind of cast aside by their respective agency yeah you know, like right even if you're a full paragon the council like really doesn't trust you until the very end you know and it's like at the expense of a lot of lives yeah and even then it's like yeah up in the yeah. air if they're even trusting you but i guess like to kind of focus our thoughts right now on one like i would love to hear just about standout moments and the decisions you made and why i I thought we wanted to sort of focus on that if i remember yeah yeah should we dip into spoilers then and yeah let's let's do spoilers for one um before before we get into spoilers i just want to double down on what i was saying before if you were like iffy about playing one because of what you heard about it mechanically that is like not a concern at all um and getting i keep we keep using the words getting through to describe mass effect one like that's not the situation i had an amazing time and i played the whole thing in like 25 or 26 hours and like short game loved all of it yeah um and it felt like it went by in like 15 minutes like it was like really an experience that i'm gonna cherish for a very long time and i like love it as an intro to this franchise but like even if it was by itself i would still be singing its praises so it's not really getting through as much as like just play it it's gonna feel like you got through it when you start mass effect 2 you will be rewarded tenfold because suddenly all the mechanics work the way you think they're supposed to like oh yeah you can jump over a barrier that you're hiding behind now (laughs) my thought 
oh, is one run so two can fly kind of thing. Like not even walk <laughs> and run, but like that's where we're at. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And honestly, one and two both kind of work as a standalone piece. You know, I mean, obviously, like they aid each other, but I think there's a world in which there was never a sequel to one and it would still be an incredible game. I totally agree. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's get into uh, spoilers then. So here we are. Here we are. Spoiler zone for in one. spoilers. What do you want to know? I want to know everything. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, so I guess that there there are a number of, I think there are like five or six like big decisions in one. There are some like things that happen in passing. You know, there's a lot of side quests that you can handle differently. Um, and actually what I've enjoyed is like one allows you to sort of explore the galaxy more directly. A lot of it does feel copied and pasted. So like the galaxy menu is like, you know, you see the systems where like there are critical missions, but you also have assignments to check out random planets and then you'll land like in the muck go and drive around yeah. and you'll find a base full of enemies that and that feels very copied and pasted but there are some fun assignments there and there are like beats in those side quests that actually will result in some emails and two like th- they remember the even those smaller events mm. but i would say there are like around six critical decisions and i think where the game I, I was streaming this mission the vermeyer mission and someone in chat said is this the eye of the duck for mass effect and i was like absolutely the vermeyer mission is where i think the game goes from like this is a cool sci-fi world i'm enjoying it to like this is the truth of the series this is like why people talk about this series not even just this game yeah yeah they they just kind of make good on every like concept that you know about mass effect in that one mission where like there are a couple like pretty big choices you have to make uh here and there on your way to vermeyer but like of the six critical decisions that you were just alluding to three of them happen in that mission (laughs) yeah so vermeyer um basically like uh, I just to set up the plot a little bit like Shepard is appointed to be the first human specter who are sort of like agents of the council that call the shots for the galaxy. They're kind of like the UN and yeah. the council are composed of the Solarians who are kind of the thinkers and scientists of the council, the Asari who are the diplomats and the Turians who are the military. And uh, it reminds me a lot of the Dominion from Deep Space Nine anyway, but uh <laughs> Basically, there's a rogue agent. There was a specter named Saren who kind of goes off the rails and starts raising an army of Geth who are malicious AI kind of robots. And and this the story kicks off where like Saren's a bad dude, you gotta stop him. And all while navigating this idea of humans being the newest species to enter the Citadel. There are thoughts of them even joining the Council, which which we talked about last week. But like, I think what makes this game feel so unique in terms of a piece of sci-fi is the fact that humans are the new discovered species. And like, right. because like Shepard is not only making these decisions that reflect himself or herself and will carry over into the next games, but they're also kind of like showing the council what humanity has to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the view of humanity is is dependent on what Shepard does with their actions. Yeah. So some big ones before Vermeyer. I mentioned last week the Rachni Queen as a big decision. Um, what did you, did you spare them or did you kill the Rachni yeah, Queen? Yeah, I saved the Rachni Queen. Uh, Rex That's, was pissed about it, but like it was the obvious choice. Even though it's the obvious choice, that is the decision where I can kind of see the logic behind the Renegade choice. Mm-hmm. And I think like if I have a main critique now in a legendary 
legendary edition version of one. It's that like renegade options are often just so silly and like borderline evil that there's like no logic behind them. Yeah. They're just like, let me see what'll happen because this is a right. video game and not like I'm making an act. I'm, I'm like engaging with the narrative and trying to make a real choice. Like in Pharos, uh, which I think you and I agreed is like the weakest mission in the game. You go to this colony of humans that are infected by this sort of mind controlling alien plant <laughs> and the people in the colony are like, okay, here are grenades you can use to peacefully subdue them, or you can just shoot them. And it's like, there's no shortcut to the latter. Right. Uh, there's there's no reason to do that unless, like, you don't know how to use the upgrade for the grenade, which is, like, also esoteric. So the way you stumble into being a renegade is just not knowing how to navigate the menu. Which actually was the situation that I ran into because <laughs> right. I didn't understand how grenades worked. I knew how to equip, like, the upgrade that I needed onto the grenades, but I didn't understand how they worked well enough. So I ended up using all of my grenades too early in that mission while like trying to do the paragon choice and then ran out of grenades because they just didn't give me any more and I was like well I guess I just got to shoot my way out of here now yeah which is a bummer and it just like it doesn't really feel it just feels kind of like a shallow choice because even if you like save them all they're just like hooray thanks for saving and like you don't know them and that was the thing I saved I think like I think there's like 10 of them and I saved like six so they were like you did it you saved everyone okay I mean I didn't (laughs) I know I didn't I feel bad I feel bad currently which means something went wrong <laughs> right um but you know that aside once you get to vermeyer there's a sort of like okay like it's a sort of full-out assault on the geth and on saren's like research laboratory where he's like experimenting with different things um and and right away you meet up with like a salarian army you know military group they're, i think they're like kind of navy seals they're more like into espionage than like full-out combat yeah that's why they're so fucked essentially when you show right. up there yeah. <laughs> you show up and, and they're like you're the reinforcements yeah. it's like just shepherd and ashley um <laughs> but they basically say like they've discovered that Saren is researching a cure for the genophage to like breed a krogan army right so the, the genophage being like uh rex one of your one of of your Krogan party members, his entire species was essentially like infected with a virus that was like uh, made by the Solarians and the Turians um, specifically to prevent them from breeding. Uh, so it's like completely destroying their ability to like propagate their species. Yeah, it's it's one out of a thousand births is successful. The rest result in stillborn, which is yeah. like horrific. And yeah. it's really sad if you know the history of the galaxy because the Solarians basically use the Krogan to fight off the Rachni, which is why rex is like just killed this thing my people like sacrificed a lot to fight these things off yeah and then there were rebellions after that and to like quell the krogan they implemented the genophage and it's been like a long like it's been like a thousand years since that so like the krogans have kind of been suffering for way too long unfairly but you it's kind of interesting because you also see like the danger of the krogans so like it's sort of this renegade ideology like that was the right thing to do in the big picture and justify the means but like it is so more corrupt to like make a species suffer indefinitely for the sins of like generations ago yeah um that like curing the genophage is the right thing to do so hearing that rex is like wait a minute i don't care who saren is if he has a cure we should let him make it you know because that's gonna save my people right and that conversation erupts into Rex kind of pulling his weapon out. Like he, mm. he like expresses his gratitude for Shepard's friendship, but um, is like, you're not stopping me from letting this cure happen. Yeah. You're both aiming a gun at each other and he's like, I'm going to fucking drop you if you don't let me go, like get this cure to my home world, essentially. And unless you have his trust, uh, which you can get, which is why I tell everyone to do his loyalty mission or not loyalty. That's, that's in two, but you can do like a personal mission for him where you get his family's armor. In 
independent of that, that helps boost your odds. But if you have high enough Renegade or Paragon, you can talk him down. And he realizes that, like, Saren's not going to help the Krogan. You know, even if he yeah. is working on a cure, it's in the wrong He's way. He's using it for the wrong reasons, yeah. Right. But a lot of people, especially the first time, because that, that moment really catches you off guard if you're not prepared for it. Right. And a lot of people have to kill him. So, like, if you can't talk him out of it, you have to fire on him. Or you have Garrus or Ashley take him out from, like, a different point. And it's really sad. And it's it's got major implication or it's got major impact on two and three, especially three, because there's a whole thing with the Krogan and three that if Rex is not around, it completely changes the landscape of that mission. Mm. So without spoiling too much, like having Rex is a good thing. And if you start with two, it defaults that you killed Rex, which is another reason to play one. Yeah, because Rex is I think we mentioned how like the characters are still kind of getting developed. But if there's one star of the first game, it's Rex. I was just about to say the same thing. Rex is so easily the best character in that game. Um, yeah, I'm kind of bummed to learn that he's not going to be like present in two really as like a like a party member that can hang out with me because he came with me on literally every single mi- like actually every mission of Mass Effect yeah. one. I had Rex with me because I just thought he was like so interesting um, and so fun to talk to. It, yeah, really, really good. Yeah, I, I did not kill Rex. Um, I, he was very important to me. I also didn't do the armor, the family armor mission. It never showed up. It never like became a thing that I, you know, like had in my like inventory of quests or whatever, uh, which is strange. I don't know how I missed that. But um, that said, I ended up still saving him because my paragon was like essentially maxed out and also my charm and intimidate were maxed out so like i imagine all of that stuff together allowed me to talk my way through that because i mean it it wasn't super hard to figure out like okay this feels like it's like leading up to potentially a big choice let me see if i could like work my magic you know not not take a chance here because i want to save rex another thing about the legendary edition is in one specifically they made a thing where like they changed the leveling system to be one to level 30 instead of 60 and i think because they did that it feels like you level up your paragon or renegade way faster than you would in the core game so Mm. like i don't feel like you're grinding for paragon in the same way like if you're playing it on one way or another you will probably have enough to make that decision which is good because i think that like it's it's really frustrating the first time i played i had to kill rex even knowing that that was going to happen because i didn't have a high enough thing and i was like playing the game to the fullest extent so it feels like in this mode and maybe it's just because i like know what I'm doing, but um, it does feel like that's easier to get, which is a great thing because my one pain point is like, I wish they do it in moments where like a solution is very hard. It's kind of a reward for having high Paragon or Renegade that like you would be skilled enough as a diplomat or a Renegade to like mm-hmm. sway people. Um, and sometimes it is fun to have to commit to a hard choice, but with Rex, like it's just, you know, keep him. He's great. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's just one of many hard choices that you're going to have to make on Vermeer anyway, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that's just the beginning of your experience on that fucking That's the planet. very beginning, which, you know, really, like, sets the mood for the mission. So you, you go through, you're fighting a bunch of Geth. I think one of the big stand-up moments is you are going through these, like, research labs where they're, like, studying, like, you're seeing husks and you're seeing people, like, kind of being experimented on, studying the effects of what they call indoctrination. And you encounter, like, a, a I guess, beacon or something where... Again, up till the, up until this point, the whole game, Saren's the bad guy. You're you're going to stop Saren. Yeah. Everything is Saren's fault. There are hints that something is up, specifically with Benezia, who is sort of introduced as like 
the right hand of Saren, but then you learn that she's Liara's mother, and in your conversations with her, it seems like she's being some kind of victim of, of mind control. Like, there are moments where she snaps out of it and she tries to warn you. Yeah. And she references Saren's flagship, Sovereign, and how, like, being in the hallways and that ship, like, it gets in your head and you, like... You start to hear, like, whispers in the back of your skull and stuff, yeah. She ref- she blames it on Saren, even though she mentions Sovereign's flagship, so even still, you think it's Saren? And then you get to a point in Vermeer where you are talked to via this, like, uh, hologram from Sovereign, the ship, who reveals themselves to be a Reaper. And it's one of the most, like, jaw-dropping moments in the game. Like, yeah. It's so fucking cool and scary. And That's like, actually exactly the phrase I was going to use to describe it. My jaw was, like, actually open the entire yeah. time I was in the middle of that conversation. It was so wild. That character, I mean, character, like, Sovereign, the ship, is so well-written. Yeah, and just, it's unbelievable. Like, you're already, you know, deep in this Vermeer quest that, like, you can tell is going to have, like, huge implications. You're, like, nearing the end of the game. Like, it's going to be a big deal. That reveal, though, was, like, rad as hell. That was, like, oh, my God, I love the lore of this game. I'm, like, so fully in for the rest of the trilogy. Like, this by itself was enough to, like, really, you know, if I wasn't already sold, which I was, but, like, if I wasn't, this would be the thing for me was yeah. that moment. And, and basically, Sovereign explains that they are a Reaper, which are these hyper-intelligent mechanical life forms that kind of look like shrimp but they're like like deep sea like they look both like a gauntlet like a hand and like a weird shrimp or squid very Mm -hmm. cool design yeah but he explains that they are you know this mechanical race that exists in the dark unlit parts of space that are beyond your comprehension that's all fun but they explain that like every tens of thousands of years they basically like cull the galaxy of advanced life forms and like reduce it back to you know, primitive life. Right. For reasons unknown, but they, they drop things. I think the screenshot you sent me is they explain, you know, the whole game, you travel in the galaxy, you go to the Citadel. It's like a beautiful, like the first jaw dropping moment is just the Citadel and seeing like what a cool place that is. It really does make you feel like you're the new kid at school. Cause you're like, Oh my God, this is so weird <laughs> and, and literally so alien to me and Shepard that like, I feel like humans don't belong here in a way, mm. you know, like, yeah. Um, which is so purposeful. And the mass relays basically are the reason people can travel through to other parts of the galaxy easily. So like, you know, you're basically still using like thruster and fuel uh, dependent engines, but the mass relays are these big devices that like, if you put your ship in, they like kind of just like shoot you in a direction to another part of the galaxy. Yeah. And the reason uh, the council exists, the Asari were the first race to discover the Citadel and the mass relays. And they sort of put this whole thing in place. Right. Um, Once those things were discovered, the rate of like technological advancement of the entire galaxy kind of skyrocketed. And that's all just like in the game. And you'll, you'll be experiencing that secondhand unconsciously. And then sovereign says like the mass relays and the Citadel are technology invented by the Reapers and they're left there because we want your society to advance as we see fit. Yeah, like yeah. we have set like the bumpers in which we want you to evolve and we will get rid of you when you need to be get rid of. And it's so scary. Yeah. Essentially they're just like, I, I think it's something along the lines of like when, when organic life reaches the pinnacle of its glory, that's when we come in and we wipe it out, uh, which is first of all, a horrifying thing to hear. Um, yeah. But this, this idea <laughs> <laughs> that they're like organic life is is an inevitability in the universe it's going to keep happening because you know like law of infinites as you continue to uh, expand throughout the universe and the galaxy and planets keep showing up 
you know, because the universe expands infinitely, like organic life is an inevitability. It's going to happen over and over and over and over again. So the way the Reapers deal with that, because they just don't want organic life, is they specifically like leave the Citadel and the mass relays out as like little tips and tricks for how to grow your uh, global or sorry, your galactic community, which is essentially just a red herring so they can wipe you out. Because the, what you learn then is that the Citadel is actually a mass relay from this like place called the Dark Zone or something. Yeah, dark space. Yeah, yeah, where where essentially like if they can open up the mass relay uh, that leads from dark space into the Citadel, then that's when the Reapers show up and just like wipe everyone out. And this has happened many times. So like you're you spend the entire game like chasing the ruins of the Protheans or like the, the previous like organic society that like essentially expanded throughout the entirety of the galaxy. And you're like, man, once we finish, once we figure out what's going on with the Protheans, we're going to learn so much about like our own place in the universe It's going to be so beautiful, so wonderful. And then you find out like, oh, no, the Protheans also, you know, built up their society, also found the Citadel, thought it was cool. They didn't build it. You thought that the, the, the Protheans built the Citadel. They didn't build it. They didn't build the mass relays like they were just as much cogs in this like ever turning machine as as we are currently what's beautiful about the protheans though is that they left messages specifically warning the next like group of organic life that this was going to happen so like maybe there's some way to stop it which is like amazing because you know you have you know a bunch of stuff that happens in mass effect you know a bunch of different inciting events of what you think the plot is and this is the moment where like right at the end of mass effect one they're like no 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 all of mass effect one is the inciting event of the trilogy it's very well written it's really so great and there's some great foreshadowing too that i i appreciated this time around like liara is an archaeologist who is studying the protheans and she's like my big theory that I have yet to prove is that there were societies even before the Protheans, yeah. which like you hear that, you're like, oh, that sounds cool. But now you're like, oh my, that's even scarier because that means that the Protheans were like the X cycle of the Reapers, you yes. know, and that like we only have evidence of the Protheans. Who knows how long this has been going on? So often villains will say like, I am beyond your comprehension or whatever. And like, <laughs> this is the first time it actually works because like, yeah. It's just so scary. It really is like a conspiracy theorist, like being proven right in terms of just like your mind being like, oh no, oh my God. <laughs> the things that we just relied on because they were there. Like you've been a social engineer of the galaxy. Are you kidding? Terrifying. Um, yeah. So that, that moment is brilliant. And it's followed by, you know, you you work your way through more Geth. And um, what I really liked, I mentioned this to you, because I think like one of one of the issues of the Renegade Paragon system and one specifically is that the reason no one went, went Renegade is it's just not interesting. Like, I think like the good or evil stuff in games like Dragon Age or in games like Fallout are fun because like there's a certain level of detachment you have to the world Mm -hmm. in fallout specifically that like makes making megaton explode not feel as horrific as it is you know and you're sort of just being like you know that maybe a bad example i know what you mean though i mean like when you're playing fallout you're almost encouraged to like kind of poke at a thing and be like "Ooh, what if i did this wouldn't this be bad you know because like it's so clearly video gamey in every single way shape and form yes whereas mass effect is like maybe this wasn't the case as much when it was only one and like you didn't know it was gonna be a trilogy but definitely when playing the legendary edition it's like no 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 this is like anytime I make a renegade choice, that's going to potentially be one of the like big options that's going to carry over to Mass Effect 2. So like you really have to think about every decision. And and the world endears itself to you. Like you love even in one, like you love the cast and or for the most part, we'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you want to help the world in a way that I think the renegade choices in two and three feel uh, over. I mean, there are some ones that are like 
pushing it in terms of maybe being actually evil, but a lot of them are just impulsive. You know, it's more of like a short-term versus long-term kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And what I really liked about this moment in Mass Effect 1 is that there is a point, you, you get into like a research lab where they're studying the effects of indoctrination, and there's a Solarian like begging for help in a like cell, and uh, you know, the Paragon option is to release him and to even ask for his help. Right. And T Tali, I had Tali and Rex with me. Tali is the, usually the Paragon voice alongside Rex. And Tali was like, I don't think we should release this guy, Shepard. That should have been my first warning. Yeah. Listen to Tali. She knows what you're talking about. <laughs> but two, I, I released him because I'm like, this could be kind of fun. And then you immediately have to kill him. And I just mm -hmm. thought it was like, it's important to give the renegade ideology some credence because otherwise, like, Paragon just becomes the right way every time. Yeah. And I think it's important to have both philosophies have their benefits. Um, yeah. Which they do way better in two. I was just I about to say, two, two yeah. is, like, actually making good on that idea. Yeah. Because um, I, I don't think it's good or evil. I think it's, like, uh, I think they describe it as Picard versus, like, 24 Jack Bauer. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, like, I remember there's an episode of Next Gen where there's, like, a weird crystal life entity that is like so beyond humanoid that like there's no way to communicate with it and whenever it shows up it just like destroys colonies yeah and there's a person on the ship who lost their son to that crystal entity and picard's whole thing is like it's not evil it's feeding the same way whales would eat plankton we need to communicate with it so we can explain to it that we mean no harm yeah it has just as much of a role in the universe as we do so like just killing it because it's killed us is not the way the great whereas episode. renegade yeah. would be like this thing has killed human colonies i've lost friends and family this thing is dead and yeah. there's an appeal to that you know and that may be the decision you know if communication is not viable which the episode plays out the way it plays out no spoilers here <laughs> for that episode but anyway I, I i appreciated that in that moment the paragon choice was ended poorly even if you totally. know I, and and i think what's more interesting about Shepard is not whether or not they are successful, but whether or not they hold on to their ideologies, you know, mm -hmm. and that to me creates a more compelling case. And I know some people who play like I, I have a friend who his Shepard is like starts off super Paragon and just becomes so jaded by the end. They go full Renegade, which like by the end of Mass Effect one or of the trilogy of three, like all three games, they just become. Dude, I'm starting to feel that a little bit. Yeah. With yeah. my experience of Mass Effect two, where like I was like almost maxed out Paragon Mass Effect one, almost no points in Renegade at all and now in mass effect 2 it's like i'm picking renegade a lot more than i thought i was going to yeah and i think what's great is that in two and three there are moments where there are big decisions and you can solve that crisis via the paragon or renegade like like charm or intimidate mm -hmm. but when you do those it's like you're actually making the same choice but it's just delivered differently so yeah. like yeah the way i played renegade largely was like i still did all the big paragon choices like i spare the rachna queen i did all that but i just the flavor was that i was a badass you know and uh, <laughs> i will say like playing femshep for renegade shepherd is so much better because like, i just think she has like a delivery to the lines that's more believable than like i'm the biggest badass in the galaxy it's like, nah, not yeah. really i i am definitely again feeling that a lot in mass effect 2 as i make more yeah. and more renegade choices but anyway so that's all happening in vermeyer it's like start to finish just the breathtaking moment in a video game still all these years later. And I can only imagine, you know, in 2007, where like the other RPG was our Muse Oblivion. We're like, there's nothing near, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, in terms of just like narrative weights, there's nothing close to Mass Effect 1 at the time it came out, at least in like an RPG like this. 
But uh, eventually you confront Saren and now you're armed with the knowledge of like, dude, you're a puppet. Like you are not in control here. And Saren keeps being like, no, 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 no. I've studied indoctrination. I'm not indoctrinated. I'm actually just using the Reapers to help advance organic life. And he's like, you know, half a machine at this point. Like he's got visible. Yeah, very, very clearly like pieces of him have been replaced with with robotics uh yeah his his whole his whole ideology i thought was really interesting and i get i get why you kind of foreshadowed this right when i started playing you're like i think siren's a really good villain and i i agree at this point because his whole thing is like he's a specter he's been a specter for a long time he learns about the reapers he learns about sovereign he learns about this like cycle that continues to happen what happened to the protheans whatever and he's like this is an inevitability really you know that the reapers are going to show up and wipe us out literally our only hope in his eyes literally our only hope is that we have to make ourselves as useful to the reapers as like the geth are you know the reapers only see inorganic life as like the end-all be-all of pretty much the universe and organic life is this like thing that needs you know this kind of like plague that needs to be wiped out over and over again and Saren is like, I think I have figured out a way to have them spare us. And essentially the conversation that you have, like between Saren and Shepard is like, I, I mean, they're just gonna make you slaves, though, dude. Like, yeah, it's not it's not you're not like saving us really in this way. You know, right? they're still getting what they want from us. Yeah. And uh, he's on like a green goblin glider, which is fun. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's a great scene. And then you fight him and, you know, the Normandy shows up and you're planting. I a, thought that was going to be the end. I thought it was going to be I killed, yeah. not the end, but like I thought I was going to kill Saren there. And then and then like the final final fight was going to be against Sovereign, which uh, a little bit of both in a way. <laughs> yeah. So you plant a bomb just to destroy the facility and um, you have to leave someone behind because the Geth are like overwhelming the station. And you basically have to choose whether or not you leave Ashley or Caden behind. You're too human compatriots one of them dies on this mission um weirdly if you start with two with no save file they default to saving ashley which is kind of funny but like i'll be honest you know we've talked a lot about the cast and like ashley and caden are like easily the least interesting members of the crew yeah ashley opens by being xenophobic to other aliens and caden is like a bottle of skim milk in terms of interesting thoughts (laughs) uh and like but I still like them enough that I'm always torn when this pops up, you know, like, yeah, they, they at least endear like Caden's like nice and likable enough. And Ashley, if you can get through her like shittiness, like kind of like how you can sway Garrus, you can sway Ashley to like not think that way or at least tell her how you think. And yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff online that's like where Ashley starts in one is not where she ends in three. And like she has a right. pretty like compelling arc, which I, I was very interested in the idea of. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think whenever there's a character like Ashley, the game isn't being like, this is correct. It's just like another viewpoint. And I mean, I think Ashley's stance is there to really showcase the tension between aliens and humans. You know, her family fought in the first contact wars that were which were only 20 years before this game's event. So like it's really recent stuff. And there's a whole thing with her grandfather and like tension there. So it's not to condone it, but like the game gives you reasons of what she's like hanging on to unfairly. And yeah, you know, it has her moments where she talks about her family and her sister and like, there's more going on with Ashley than Caden. I think definitely (laughs) Caden just like kind of nice and like, you know, that's sort of it. But anyway, when this decision came up, I was pretty set on saving Caden because I playing it again. I'm like, I do not like Ashley. I don't like her views. And I also was like, Ashley's a soldier. She's signed up for this cadence like 
an engineer biotic, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's sort of, uh, but in the moment, I really tried to be in the moment. I'm like, I, my shepherd knows Ashley better. We've like gone on missions more than Caden. And in the moment I read the dialogue as like Caden just felt like more ready to, to stay. Like they're both arguing over who should stay behind. Like they both totally. want to be the one. And Caden is the one who goes, belay that order. Let me stay behind. And even when you like commit to it, he's like, you're making the right decision. Mm. Whereas I remember Ashley, like there's something about Ashley's voice that feels like a little bit like she is refusing to like get over her own stuff and she just wants to go down in that fight that was my read of it is like there's still more to ashley that i need to see so i ended up saving ashley even though i like her less which i had regrets about but i think no matter who you choose you're gonna have regrets and that's like a taste of what's to come where like yeah as much as you try to mid-max shepherd like you can't save everyone and this is the first taste of that yeah i i ended up leaving ash behind um i had a really hard time with that choice you know i think yeah. e- even given all the stuff i've said about that character already on this podcast like i had a really hard time making the decision between the two of them it came down to two things one of them like in game and one of them kind of like me as the player or like one of them i guess in fiction one of them like me more as like a player wanting to see more stuff i I sat back and I thought that Ash sacrificing herself for this cause specifically was like actually a good resolution of her arc and her a, redemption. Yeah. 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 In a way, um, which like, you know, sucks. She shouldn't have to uh, sacrifice herself regardless. But, you know, it, when given the choice, you have to make the decision like of the two of them. I thought that Caden dying on this planet, like literally made him a completely meaningless character for me when he died. Like if he were to die on Vermeer, like he would have had no arc, no character, no nothing. Really. He didn't come with me on any missions. I talked to him like maybe two times total. I don't even really know what his role is. I didn't even know he was an engineer until you just said that. Um, (laughs) So like I had no idea what was going on. Whereas Ashley, every time I talked to her about her family and stuff like that, like I learned so much about her and I saw the potential of where she was going to go. And that's almost why it made it more narratively interesting for her to be the one that I left behind. So that's like in lore, kind of like why I thought that made sense for her specifically to like fight for that and want to be left behind is like she actually like grew a little bit in Mass Effect 1 and that's how it ended. The like outside of the game, like player reason for it, was like Caden was so nothing in Mass Effect 1 that I need to see if they give him literally anything to work with in 2 or 3. Um, yeah. I just, I, ha- I have to know who he becomes as a person because like he is, he is, uh, would you just call him a, a bag of skin milk? I like bag of skin milk even more than bottle. <laughs> yeah, he's a bag of skin milk. <laughs> That's, that is how I saw him throughout the game and like I would love to see him become like more of a person. Um, and already yeah. the little like hints of what I've gotten about what he's up to in Mass Effect 2 before I've met him, like I just, I'm excited to see what what's going on with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's reasons for both choices. Totally. I think overwhelmingly people chose Ashley from what I know, like mm. from the stats of the game, which is interesting because, like, again, Caden is is more likable. But I think it also depends on like there's a version of this game where you are romancing one of them, which like, yeah, I think Bioware kind of expected and is why that choice would be so heavy is like, you know, do I favor the person that Shepard is in love with or not? And how does that play out? You know, like, right. How does that damage the relationship? Because like whoever you save, they're pissed that you didn't leave. Like they're pissed at the decision you made. You yes. know, Ashley's like, that should have been me. And you know it. Like, I can't believe you left Caden behind. Yeah. And that's something that really like that decision really sticks with you the whole trilogy. Like you never really get over it, which mm-hmm. is 
Yeah. I mean, I, f- I feel that constantly, like as I'm playing yeah. through the game or as I'm playing through Mass Effect 2 right now, it's like I constantly think like, I wonder what Ash would have been up to at this point. And they double down on that in 2 where like in Mass Effect 2, literally everyone has the potential of dying in the final mission. Like it's all up to whether or not they're loyal, if you did a loyalty mission and what task you assign them and how long it takes you to defeat the mission. I have never lost anyone yet, which I'm, I consider myself lucky, <laughs> but you know, most people I know lose like one or two characters and they all have like an in-game probability of like surviving oh that is affected by your decision so like like again there's a version of two where everyone dies including Shepard and that's the end of the game for you <laughs> and you just don't get it's to play even- three <laughs> Uh, if you import that save, it doesn't work. You have to make a new shepherd. Uh, wow. You really, I've met, I've said this before, but you have to go out of your way to do that. You'd have to like know what to do and do the cosmic opposite mm. to get that to happen. Right, right, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I think that, you know, again, like that, that idea of you can't save everyone and, and Saren's advice of like, this is a futile effort kind of becomes like more and more pressing as the series continues, especially yeah. in three, yeah. you know, when, when, you know, I mean, I won't spoil the events of three, but I think you can kind of assume what is happening there. Uh, I have some hunches as yeah. to where three goes. <laughs> I, I think Vermeer is like the standout of of not only one but of the series i think that like i I love the finale as well what follows is great i mean basically once you do verma you're kind of like railroaded into the end of the game because what follows is like you get in a call from the council being like oh they want to launch a full-on attack of saren and the geth um and you get you get to the citadel and then it's revealed that like they no longer want to send you and that udina has had the normandy docked permanently grounded as they say in in the citadel i mean it's kind of a low moment where it's like uh, we were so close to like finding out who the real enemy was and you're trying to tell the council that the reapers exist but they're like hey man you've only been told this in a dream like we can't act on that like yeah we know that saren's a threat so we're gonna act on that but like sovereign and the reapers this is like a fairy tale and like even though it's annoying to the player and to Shepard, like you kind of see where they're coming from. Like they really can't trust. They are operating on such a massive scale of trillions of lives of the galaxy. They can't just believe that, you know, you had this vision. And I guess I don't know, my, my frustration there was like, I've been right about everything so far. Yeah. And that's what Shepard says. He's like, why are you doubting me now? Like, I'm not making this shit up. And Rodina is like, you've done your part. Now let me play mine. It just sucks. Like, yeah, fuck Rodina. But it leads me to uh, Anderson, who's one of my favorite characters in the trilogy, and he has an incredible role at the end of this game, where Anderson is actually almost weirdly the opposite of Saren, where Saren has become a specter, has learned all the stuff that Shepard has, and has chosen to embrace it rather than fight it. Anderson was in a candidate to be a specter, but like did the right thing and has kind of had all his credentials stripped. I mean, the Normandy was his ship, right. and they gave it to Shepard, and it's sort of like, you know, he's happy for you, but you can tell there's like a part of him that's kind of given up. Yeah, they essentially force him into retirement yeah and you meet him in a bar and he's like all right udina sucks like let me take care of udina you'll have like three minutes to get out of here and then like i believe you go fight saren go fight sovereign yeah. he's like you're one ally in the citadel and it cuts to a scene where anderson is walking through the door and udina's like i didn't call for you and he just punches him in the face and it's so gratifying yeah. like there, there's another option there there's another like way that that mission can play out but it's it's so obvious that there's going to be a version of this where anderson gets to punch udina in the face <laughs> like even i i had no idea what was going to happen but i was like he's going to go get in a fight with udina and udina's not going to make it out <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's that's what I want to see as the player. <laughs> Anderson, I mean, Anderson's really brought to life too by Keith David's performance. Like, mm-hmm. definitely one of the best in the game, I think, yeah. vocally. And that leads you to Elos, the last planet, which like also has another jaw-dropping moment where you talk to a Prothean AI that like explains like their final moments and like yeah, so what cool. you could do to potentially you know save the day. And that's all great. I won't get, I mean, we'll save that for the bonus, but like everything really is like following the energy of Vermeer. Like the, the, the finale is great and it's really gratifying. And, you know, the final big decision is whether or not you spare the council. Did you save them or did you? I saved the council. Yeah. Yeah. Basically like sovereign is like attacking the Citadel and like the council will be destroyed unless you like kind of launch the alliance the human alliance to save them so rex is with me and rex is like they've only shit on you why would you sacrifice like your people's lives to save them and it's you know again like it becomes it becomes a like humanity versus like the greater good of like all organic life in the galaxy kind of question which really really like becomes the central like hinge upon which mass effect 2 kind of exists so this is like your first like taste of like that specific idea yeah and i mean i think it's like okay like the council has been antagonistic to me this whole game they never believed me there is a gut impulse to sacrifice them it's like screw them they they didn't believe me but like the other part is like we will prove humanity's worth if we act selflessly you know if we if we're like we're not acting we have a place within this galaxy not on top of it Mm -hmm. and it's a great moment which leads to like you know at the very end there's sort of like a new hope ceremony where the council's like thank you for saving me Shepard you probably did Uh, who do you want to appoint (laughs) to the council now that humanity is welcome and you can choose Udina or Anderson and like I can't imagine even on the most renegade playthrough anyone choosing Udina yeah Uh, like who on earth that would be an unreal choice That's worse than killing the Rachni Queen is giving Odina a powerful political position. That's one of those choices that like I, I'm opening myself up to potentially playing this game again or like this trilogy again with like, you know, a, a different mentality and like make different choices on purpose, like just to see what's going on. That is a choice specifically that I will just watch on YouTube because I just want <laughs> to know what would happen if I made the objective wrong choice. <laughs> Oh my god. And it's great because like you choose Anderson and Dean is like, what? He only talks with his fists. And he goes, only for you, counselor. Only mm-hmm. for you. It's great. Right Seeing line, Anderson yeah. happy is the best. But yeah, I mean, I think most if you play one, like most people are gonna make those choices, which is like kind of a bummer to a certain extent because like, you know, I, I think that's what the writers learned for the sequels, but like, you know, I think what's bigger about that game are not the choices you can make but the ones you can't like saving Ashley or Caden where like you have to lose someone I was just about to say like even if most people are making the same decision when presented with a choice like you still are making a really heavy decision you know like even if 90% of players made one choice over the other like they probably still had to think about it for a second and that is already like significantly more interesting than just having a cutscene with no agency right exactly so yeah i mean mass effect one's an incredible game i i i'm glad you got to experience it and i'm glad you know you got rex that's the big thing just get rex really uh rex is amazing so i guess uh you know like you said earlier how two is like immediately better in every way one is an incredible game that you need to play two okay so full disclosure i am like terrifyingly into two i i think i have 30 hours i've recruited every character done every loyalty mission except for one and uh i'm like close to platinuming it not only close to finishing it but i maybe have done everything in like a few days somehow unbelievable 
Yeah. Two is one of my favorite games. I hadn't played it in years, so I was kind of nervous to go back because, again, you know, I brought it up on Games of the Decade as one of my favorite games of the decade. I've mentioned it in passing on being this sort of like really big moment in my life in terms of how I viewed video games and like the potential they have for like emotional impact and and storytelling devices. So I was like, man, there's no way I I could have overhyped returning it to more for myself. There's no way it's going to be the same. And it's like maybe a perfect game. Like it's really, (laughs) it's really like, there are definitely things to critique about it. Don't get me wrong. Um, You know, in terms of like just certain choices and and handling of things, but like Mm -hmm. the mission of the game itself and the way it accomplishes its own objectives is about as close to perfect as a, as a game can be. And, and I really not, not perfect in the sense of like, Everyone will love this game as much as I do, but in like a, the game is broadcasting a certain experience and it so delivers on that in ways that you both predict and are surprised by. Just like start to finish the focus of two is so brilliant and simple. It's a very simple game. Like one is super ambitious and and three has so much work to do as like the final installment that yeah. both kind of have like weak moments. There are quests I like more than others, but there's like not a dull moment in two. Even the like objectively boring planet scanning is risen by the amazing galaxy menu music. I mean, I like it. Sue me. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's amazing. The the inciting event of two is that Shepard dies, basically, which this yeah. is the like it's so funny because I think, you know, three came out and there was, you know, Uh, a lot of conversations about the ending and and critiquing the game overall. Mm -hmm. And like, no one points to how silly this is as like a plot hole. Like, (laughs) like Shepard dies, like the Normandy, uh, you know, it begins like aboard the ship. Joker's there. Liara's there. Shepard's there. Yeah. The gang's all here and they get shot out of the sky, essentially. And it's really a brave way to, it almost feels like last Jedi adjacent in the terms, in terms of like, rejecting the established norms of the the preceding game where it's like the game opens with the destruction of the Normandy and the crew. So like, right. uh, Especially, I mean, I guess I'm thinking of middle installments, you know, Empire Strikes Back, I think is definitely a clear influence for this game as well. In just terms of like, okay, you have this sort of like adventure and establishment of one, like Mm -hmm. what kind of twist and how can you further develop this fictional world with this game so it opens with the destruction of the of the ship and Shepard dies in space and it's a really horrific way to begin a game of like a cast you love and it really this is like the moment where playing one is so important because like if you're jumping into two fresh you're like okay that was kind of scary but yeah I didn't remember this scene literally at all even having played like the first I don't know five to ten hours of two at some point in in the past like I could I had completely forgotten that this happened and now I can never forget this scene because holy shit is it wild to watch the Normandy get ripped apart like this and then it cuts to even Joker who I like don't really like as a character like when you have to save him you know because he wants to go down with the ship and like you have to convince him to not go down with the ship is like that was wild and Liara is like kind of trying to get everyone it was Liara for me was it Liara for you as well or was it Ashley or Caden I think it was Liara. I had romance Liara in the first game, so I was just wondering if that had like an impact on anything or yeah, at all. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it was Liara. I don't really remember. It all happened so way, fast, it's a blur. Yeah, it really, <laughs> it really does feel so quick. I mean, there's a moment, too, where like the way the ship has been struck, the middle of it is like spaced. So like you have to kind of briefly walk in like zero, zero G, gravity. Yeah. And it's really, again, like this, the cinematography of two is immediately like one upping the first game, you know, yes. like especially in the dialogue, like everything is treated with the same cinematic weight. Like in one, whenever you're talking to the crew on the ship, it's just like shot reverse shot. But in this game, like every moment has like different angles and like purposeful shots. So yeah, 
ship destroyed, Shepard dies, and then it cuts to the elusive man, uh, voiced by Martin Sheen, who just does an incredible performance, like, immediately iconic, like, even if you, like, that's the thing, if you start with two, you'll immediately feel like you've seen the shot before, even though you haven't. Uh, elusive man is sitting in a chair in this, like, giant, empty room with a bunch of screens overlooking, like, a dead star, I guess? Yeah. Uh, it's, like, reflected and- in, like, the mirrored floor below him. Yeah. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful shot and it's so it's so immediately iconic and there's nothing on that level in Mass Effect 1. Like yeah, really so quickly. Not. It's it it really one ups itself, yeah. He talks with Miranda uh who, and they're both part of a group called Cerberus who like are I thought only it was funny the, the introduction of Miranda cuz I had forgotten about this but like, you know, the elusive man played by Martin Sheen looks nothing like Martin Sheen uh and then Miranda played by Yvonne Strahovski like looks exactly like Yvonne Strahovski but with black hair instead of blonde hair. Uh, yeah, they scanned I, her face. Yeah. Yeah, which I th- I just think is so funny. Like just just <laughs> <laughs> Let the elusive man be Martin Sheen. What's wrong with Martin Sheen's face? He does. He has like uh, the presence of Martin. Sheen. I just see Martin Sheen in a yeah. recording booth when I'm when I'm hearing oh, the elusive yeah. man talk. Apparently, he would like suck on a pen when when the, he smoked. Like he got really into oh, it. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah. But anyway, they're talking about the collector attack on human colonies. Cerberus is a pro-human group that are only briefly mentioned in one in a side quest you might miss. Like they're not yeah. really talked about in one at all. Which like. I had experienced that and I was like, oh shit, hello, sir. Yeah, it is. And like, that's the other thing. Like, I never really got how uneasy that alliance was into the first time until I had played one. And yeah. like, it is really the cosmic opposite of the council. So, you know, Miranda's like, no one will follow us, but they'll follow Shepard. We need to bring him back. And then cut to the Lazarus project. They bring Shepard back to life and wait. It's so cinematically well done that you don't even ask any questions. Like, even though it is like by far the silliest moment in the, in the series yeah, that he's just brought back to life like Frankenstein. And I won't go through the whole beginning, but like, it allows you to change your class, which I was very happy with because I'm yeah. no longer a soldier now. I'm an infiltrator, which is fun. That's how they flavor like scanning your face in the first scan. Like, is this what you look like before you got brought before back? You, from yes. the yeah. <laughs> so you kind of fucked up my beard, but I guess it's fine. Yeah, um, they also removed all of the scars that I had added and then added new scars. Yeah, the so face. there's a whole thing in, in two where if you do all the renegade choices, your scars get more visible and your eyes get red. Whoa. But you can actually, there's an upgrade on the ship where you can just like erase all those scars no matter how how you're playing oh interesting but yeah it's the idea they're like you get an email that's like mind over matter shepherd like we've noticed some weird scars if you think positively they won't grow <laughs> okay very silly but if you want to go ultra renegade and like look scary that's an option for you anyway uh so i think what i really love about two is like immediately you know when shepherd is brought back and he has to talk to the elusive man for the first time like you know via star wars hologram mm-hmm. there's like the elusive man is basically like shepherd uh i can't do his voice but it's gr- great performance uh he's basically says like humans are under attack i believe that the reapers exist that's the big thing here it's yes. the big catch because the whole first game you're trying to convince the council that it's not a dream you had it's a real threat they've even attacked the citadel and even in this game even in two the council still blames that attack on the geth and Saren. they right. still don't believe in the reapers even though there was a reaper on top of the citadel so the fact that elusive man opens like i know that not only do i i have this news of these collectors specifically attacking human colonies but i know that they're working with the reapers and i want your help to bring down the reapers and you know you can play out the conversation a million different ways and ask him more questions they've really prepared for like all the possible plot holes with that where it's like why me why Mm -hmm. are you you know blah 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 like all this stuff you you spent more money than anyone has ever seen in real life like to bring me back you could have (laughs) hired like a billion people and then trained them to be better than me 
like why me specifically um which by the, just sidebar on that note specifically i love the answer to that it's essentially like you're captain america and we found you in the ice like of course we're gonna bring captain america yeah back. you're an icon it's like very literally that idea which right I love. and and they know that no one's gonna trust cerberus or believe cerberus so if they can work with shepherd they have like an in on almost every group in the galaxy yeah and the first two humans we meet, I think Miranda and Jacob, similar to Ashley and Caden, are like the eighth and ninth most interesting characters in the cast. But there's a little bit more going on because I think Miranda is someone who like very clearly like believes, at least in the beginning, she believes in Cerberus, believes in the elusive man. And there's a kind of a sketchy vibe to her. Whereas yeah. Jacob is very much trying to connect with you as a person and is like, I'm only here because I got sick of the red tape. Like I got sick of the Alliance and the council doubting everything we were doing. Like mm-hmm. Cerberus wants to make a difference. I'm going to sign up for that. And what's interesting is like you see like every character, including Shepard, and that's up to you on how they handle working with Cerberus. And that's also independent of Renegade and Paragon sometimes like you can be Paragon or Renegade and pro Cerberus or anti Cerberus. Like there's a lot of different shades there. Yeah. The thing we haven't really said is that Cerberus is like, you know, they're, they're like a pro humanist group, which already, you know, skeeves me out. But also you find out that they've been like the perpetrators of like a bunch of like potential terrorist attacks and stuff like they they use violence. They they're very much like renegade like they're renegade to to the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Which like Uh, and and it gets like really problematic. And that's why I actually really like Jacob immediately is because like even in the first conversation you have with him uh, uh, when you're back on the new Normandy, you know, he's like, I don't really like Cerberus that much. And then Shepard is like, oh, thank God. Thank God there's somebody else like who will just say this out loud and not just me. And I I think what I I just love about like, I love that uneasy alliance. I love how everyone navigates it. And it really is like great opportunities to like go into their character and into their own arcs within this game alone. Not to mention like in that very opening, he's like, okay, here's the plan. We know that the the Omega relay goes to the collector homeworld. We don't know how to get through it. And we don't have a team right now. I have a dossier on everyone who would be great on your team. I know how you work. I rebuilt the Normandy to the, the exact specifications and it's better now. And Joker's the pilot. So like, yeah, the, the elusive man brought you back to life and is giving you everything you want and need to succeed. But there's like such a uneasy vibe in the air. And I, and I like that. I like that uneasy alliance. And I think he's a very interesting character because like he's very clearly a villain of some kind but like he is also you the venn diagram of what you and he want briefly overlapping in a way that like makes it worth the uneasy alliance yeah and what's cool too is like it really like the fact that it opens with shepherd dying is so symbolic because i think that like you go back to the citadel and the council are sort of like there and name only like they reappoint they could potentially reappoint your specter status which was a huge deal in the first game here it's like that doesn't really mean anything anymore because like, i'm not with the alliance and like even uh anderson who is on the council now is still kind of in the same loopholes he's been in the same red tape which is kind of a bummer yeah it's like i'm i'm one of the members of the council and even i can't convince them that the reapers exist yeah right it's very purposeful that the first setting you you go to is omega which is like the fifth element nightclub version of the citadel which yeah. is such a cool setting this game is like a very heavy use of color, specifically orange and red, and it's so effective. Mm-hmm. Like the way that Persona 5 uses red, this game uses orange, uh, and it, it just works so well. But I think what's cool is that like most of the cast from one are all kind of separated and they've all kind of moved on in ways. And they're all like, as characters tend to do in a second installment of a trilogy, they're all struggling with something. Um, you know, like I, I won't say too much because I know you haven't gotten there yet, but like the way, like right away you meet up with Tali, you know, 
who's with a few Corians, and yeah. she's like, you're with Cerberus now? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. It doesn't spoil too much. I said that some familiar faces are back, and I think that, like, again, this game is is the reason people love Garrus. Like, his role in this game is, like, unbelievable. Shocking. Like, yeah. And pretty much every like... There are a few weaker links, but like this game has such a heavy focus on cast because the whole game is the elusive man saying, build this team, do what you need to do to get ready and then go through this like suicide mission. Yeah, it's Ocean's Eleven, you know, yeah, it's, right. it's like Ocean's <laughs> Eleven. But what if the getting the team together part like was two acts of the movie instead of just one? And what's great is that every character has a mission where you can either gain or not gain their loyalty, which increases the odds of the success of the mission and of their survivability. So like. It's also like they took the Rex moment and applied that to the whole cast where they're like, yeah, whether or not these characters will make it to the third game is dependent on how much you invest in them. And like, it is so effective, like really, even the characters that aren't super interesting have like, they might have a really incredible loyalty mission. Everyone also has like their own arc in this game alone. And it's great to see like how characters acted in one and how they're acting now. Like Garrus is a big example. Tali, another like radical transformation of character that like makes her a star of the series. Everyone, like everyone in, in one gets a great cameo. And, you know, everyone who's introduced in this game, like Morden and, and a few other characters are like so immediately fan favorites. And yeah. I think what's great is that like everyone has very clear shades of gray, you know, and I think like a lot of the quests are not as simple as like, do you kill them or do you spare them? Like, all I'll say is that like, I think the decision making is a lot more dynamic in this game than in the first one, because in the first one, a lot of the choices are like, yeah, there's standout moments, but a lot of them are like live or die stuff. And here yeah. it's like, there are way more shades of gray, just like there are with the elusive man and this whole arrangement as a whole, you know, and like the idea of Shepard, I mean, famously in the Citadel, you can uh, record your voice going like, I'm Commander Shepard. This is my favorite store on the Citadel. I'm like, yeah, you've almost become like a, uh, you know, like myth to people. And and yeah, it's just uh, maybe I'll save the rest for, you know, the bonus episode. But like uh, and not to even mention like how it plays, like the gunplay is like it goes from being serviceable to actually great. Yeah. I also want to mention that I, you know, I, I played the first game on casual as a soldier, which is, you know, combat focus and it, it, people dropped like immediately as soon as I hit them with like a bullet, which like was fine because I just needed to get through it. I just wanted to see Mass Effect 2 and now Mass Effect 2 I'm playing on normal mode um, and like actually using my abilities and like actually switching weapons and upgrading stuff and like, you know, ordering my my squad mates around and stuff and like really engaging with all those systems. And it is like a dream. And I've died like twice as much already in Mass Effect 2 than I did in the first one, uh, which has been great. Uh, it's been really fun to like <laughs> need to be like, oh, shit. No, I really do need to employ like a real strategy. Here. I really need to think about like squad placement and what abilities we're using when and stuff. It's really fun. It's really, what's, really fun. It really is. And what's cool, too, is they've streamlined it in a way that I don't think like dumbs it down. Because I think like in one, everyone is a class that Shepard could be and they would have the same abilities. So like if you're yeah. an engineer, you're going to have the same abilities that Tali does. But in two, everyone like there is some overlap, like some characters will have overload or whatever, like warp. But every character has like a character specific ability that again kind of aids the theme of like them each being individual characters and people. Right. It's why they're on the Ocean's Eleven team. Yes, exactly. And uh, the thing that they really streamlined that like is such a like huge breath of fresh air. The one 
thing that is objectively bad and one that is not any better in the legendary version is the menu. Like you get so much random equipment that is usually meaningless that you can turn into Omnigel, which is fine. But like navigating the menus is so tedious that I often like, I don't even care if it's better. I just don't even want to deal with that. Like, yeah. I'm just kind of like wear what I'm wearing. Right. Yeah. But I kind of miss it now in two weirdly. I got you so do? Yeah. Like I hated it in one when I started and then eventually I was like, this is cute. And now I'm, I'm sad that it's gone. Oh man. Well, what I would say is that like, the way they change it is that you just sort of buy and get schematics for different weapons. So like yeah. in one place and every time before a mission, it lets you like choose who's in your squad, what weapons they're using. And uh, they made the abilities so like everyone kind of has like four things. They have like, you know, their class a few abilities but what's what's more dynamic is like once you max it out you can choose one of two final forms for that ability so mm-hmm. like one might focus on health over weapon damage so like or you know if you max out like a grenade it will be like all right do you want to make the impact bigger do you want to make it as stronger as a grenade so yeah there's still a lot of creativity there not as much as one and again i think i, I can see liking that customization in one but i just don't think it has the same payoff like even though two is giving you fewer options you can see the impact of your choices in combat way more than in one where everyone's just sort of running around yeah another thing that's a small change but like really makes a huge difference is that in this game there's a dedicated button to taking cover whereas in one you had to have your weapon drawn and just be near cover to take it and like it's always kind of awkward in this it's like okay if i push x i'm taking cover and 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 the way the battlefields are like orchestrated and, and choreographed is so fun. In one, like there's some really great settings, but a lot of it's like warehouses and on a planet. Yeah. A hallway with boxes. And yeah. two, like they're just breathtaking. Like I'm using photo mode in combat constantly because I, I won't spoil where they are, but there are some missions that have like such cool settings. It really has like, stayed with me and it feels like a dream to be back in that place and like mm. have it be exactly as I remembered it. It's just a, a perfect video game. Uh, weirdly. Uh, and it's again, things to criticize and things to comment on, but like, I'm very curious to see how I'll feel when I play three again. And I look at the whole trilogy and see how I feel about each one. Yeah. But I am pretty certain two will still be my favorite. And it's been so cool to be back in this game. Yeah. I'm excited to play more of two. I'm going to do it as soon as we're done with this phone call. Yeah. It really, like I look, there are other games coming out. I do want to check out other stuff, but really the, the thing that's like calling to me is mass effect right now. So, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Should we wrap up so we can play more mass effect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, Hey, thank you so much for listening into the cast that online is where you can find all our various places where you can listen to the show all our various social media outlets. Um, if you like the show, the best way to help it grow is to share it with a friend. You can give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We've seen a few new ones. Thank you for that. And uh, the Patreon uh, is now more confidently a place you can really help the show. As we said at the top, we'll be starting uh, making patron-exclusive episodes at the start of Season 4, so we'll keep you posted on that. Same spiel. If backing the Patreon puts you in any financial strain, please do not. But now you can more confidently know that like that is helping the show grow more than it has in the past where we just sort of had it because people asked. So um, another huge special thanks to our patrons who like even before we announced what we were doing, we're like, yeah, I'll back that. Uh, thank you. Yeah. really means a lot. That's basically all I got. Anything to add? Um, I, I would just say, like, head over to our YouTube and our Twitch. Uh, there's been a bunch of cool stuff there. You did, like, a four-part series that was, like, a truncated version of 
Mass Effect 1, which I think like definitely worth watching. Uh, some good stuff in there. I'm excited to now nice. like go back and watch the last two um, because I didn't <laughs> want to spoil them for myself. Yeah, totally. I have some stuff I'm working on for the YouTube that I'm very excited about. Yeah. Um, that's centered on uh, if you're in the Discord and you're in the photo mode channel, like you've seen a lot of my uh, screenshots from Mass Effect. Uh, I'm working on some photo mode adjacent stuff for YouTube that I think is really cool. That's kind of it. It's kind of it for now. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you all so much. I'm not sure what I'll be streaming next. I might take a little break because I went like right from doing the Nuzlocke into what I thought was going to be the entire trilogy. And then I'm like, I want to I want to binge this on my own time. So I, I like that we had, you know, the full first game. I think we're going to do, you know, a lot of stuff on Halloween, but I'll try to find something in the interim. That would be fun. But uh, yeah, expect expect all that to to exist. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, my name is well, Brendan Bigley. You can find me on the internet <laughs> at Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. You can find me at Stephen Hilger. Have a wonderful day. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.